You're listening to Artemis Projects Podcast. I'm currently in Belgrade and I'm sitting in a studio of UK artist Genevieve Livold. I'm surrounded by paintings that have fluid and abstract forms inspired by nature and in particular microbiological and mycological shapes and colors. We meet today to discuss the inspiration behind her work and style and some of her guiding philosophies, including the view that art, at its heart, is a way of making sense of the world. And how did you um, how did you find this studio? Through Godson. Uh-huh. Yeah. So she when I first moved here, um, mm. I uh, I when I knew I was coming here, I got in touch. I found the artist in residency program um, and uh, just wrote to her and said, you know, I'm coming for a few months. Do you have a studio? Do you know anyone who might have a studio or any links to art studios. And um, she put me in touch with Katerina, who was just about to go to India at the time. So. Mm-hmm. You came here initially through her residency programme? No, we. so my husband um, had done some work here. And he'd come to Belgrade three or four times for, for work. And so I'd come out to visit him and stayed on the weekend and I just fell in love with the city. Mm-hmm. And then um, when we were in London and our landlord basically was selling the flat or something I can't remember we had to leave and we didn't really know where to go and we didn't want to live in London and so we kind of jokingly said oh look if something comes up in Belgrade let's just go there for five months or something and just work out and he got a job uh, like a four-month contract out here doing some training so yeah we just moved (laughs) and then it's just and then it's ended up being four nearly five years now. Would you like to stay here or is it... Um, it's a bit mixed. I think I miss, I'm miss. i beginning to really miss my family and friends and stuff back home. Just things like, you know, friends having children mm-hmm. that are growing up that I'm not part of their lives. And um, But I don't, I don't know. At the same time, I really love it here. Like, this has been a really profound life-changing experience for me being here so in what way well my practice I just this what exists now wasn't anywhere near what I was painting when I was in London it was I mean I still connected to nature but it wasn't it wasn't very liberated I didn't feel like I knew who I was or what what I could be and um yeah, just having the freedom, silence almost of being here because I don't speak the language and I couldn't get involved in the politics and I can't, you know, I had to connect with it in a very visual way, I suppose, the city and the kind of, so it was, yeah, it was kind of freeing. And also just difference, the, like a different culture challenges your own perceptions of the world. And um, I'd never realised how much of my behavior was cultural which is a really strange thing to discover just yeah 
suddenly, I don't know, did you find that when you moved to Australia, you suddenly realised? Sure. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so much. There is a term called displacement trauma. So feeling a bit out of your, you know, the root, to, like mm. belonging to the yeah. place, to, to familiarity of the place. Which is, on the other hand, also exciting to go away from. Because mm. you can see with the fresh eyes, as you're saying. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Have you felt displaced? Um, I did. I do sometimes. No, I don't know, it's weird. I definitely did when I first got here. I felt really... Um, it just felt really awkward. And I didn't understand... And it wasn't so much Serbia, it was more the expat culture. I didn't understand it. I didn't understand how, like, it just felt really uh, synthetic, the kind of conversations that you'd have. So it was really difficult to find and connect with people. Obviously, I connect with, um, you know, the, my Serbian friends here and the artists that I made friends with. But then there's that cultural language that goes beyond language that you have when you live somewhere. So the, there are gestures and hand movements and things that you connect with a person that disappear when you're out of, in a different culture, I think. But then also with the expats, I couldn't find anyone. Like I was desperate at one point to find someone English. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting in this, going to this, um, I had this thing called Thirsty Thursdays, which was just horrible for me because it was just loads of strangers and it was really busy. And, um, and then I met this girl who had a perfect English accent. She sounded just like me. And I sat next to her and I was just so, I had this real like, oh my God moment. And I was like, oh, where are you from? And she's like, Serbia. And I just was, I said, like, do you live in England? And she's like, no, I've never been. But she just had the most perfect, perfect pronunciation. (laughs) And I was really angry. And then it really made me quite interested about the thing about, because one of the really British things is wanting to do everything perfectly right or not at all. So language is a huge issue. So I wanted to be able to, speak Serbian like fluently immediately and I couldn't but then that interaction with that person really made me realize actually it's almost better to speak to have an essence of yourself wherever you are whether that's an accent or a how does that translate in your practice this British thing that you need to be perfect or not at all and then this discovery that the essence is what matters yeah that was actually that was quite a quite a journey within my practice I was working as a PA in London and doing the art part time to try and because it's so expensive you need to try and make ends meet and I'd ended up taking on three I think it was three clients by the time I actually finished I had these three different clients it was so demanding and I was realizing very quickly that I was very bad at being a PA like I just didn't have I didn't have that level of organization and specificness in me and so when I got here I had about three months of kind of decompression from the intensity of the work and like getting over the trauma and then realization of because I'd saved up enough to cover me for six months so I kind of felt you know free and then I took on the studio but when I got here I didn't I didn't come to the studio for ages I just couldn't I didn't know what to do with the space I didn't know I felt like I didn't it was almost like I didn't deserve it or I wasn't 
I needed to be right to be inhabiting it. And so I remember sitting, no, like paying rent for this space and having my things in this space and sitting on my balcony and drawing um, and just just drawing. I had these little sketchbooks um, I got from the UK and I was just filling them because they felt safe. Like they felt these small spaces where I could where I could practice without feeling threatened by the commitment to being an artist and taking the leap to, to the decision to be here. So that really challenged my sense of perception because although I didn't train in art, I did do an art foundation when I was about 19. And I remember one of my tutors forcing me to draw with a stick because he just said, you have to stop trying to do everything so tightly. And so he made me fill a sketchbook with drawings with stick and ink. And I hated it, like the kind of messy, scratchy. But I, I remember that when I was when I was here and it just... In the sketchbook, I started doing these kind of more looser, they're still tiny, but these sort of loose graphite drawings. And then I came here and I started working on a series of them from walking around the city. I used to walk a lot around the city and around the train tracks and the kind of ruined bits. And so there were, it was a mess and there was things growing in buildings and all the rest of it. So um, first of all, I took loads of photos and then started working on them and just yeah that I think that was you know that kind of helped me get out of that need to be perfect and yeah what was it that gave you that permission I don't know if it was just time or because I started to feel more at ease I think and I let go of some stuff and and I remembered what that tutor had made me do with the stick and I remember feeling at the time actually it was nice to just make loads rather than work on one that was supposed to be perfect so yeah and that was it and there was another thing actually I read um it might be mastery somebody recommended it another artist um and I think I feel like the whole experience when I first got here was was a like tripping into things that suddenly had quite a profound effect and I wasn't really looking for anything but but I kept falling into the right things so that person mentioned it on a blog I think and I'd never heard of the book before and then I found it and it's a really interesting study and I thought because I'd never trained properly I thought oh I could self-train if I sort of take this narrative from this book and use these ideas and then sort of self-train in techniques and try and find what my voice is and so and one of the things it said was about making many rather than few almost the more you make the more you're likely to hit something which is beautiful or important in some way yeah so that that was quite liberating I think you trained as a theatre designer How does your training in theatre design translate in your painting, if it does at all? Um, I don't know. I think there's the element of creating other worlds, which is part of theatre, which was always part of my... Actually, my love of theatre and what took me into theatre design was the idea of being able to make places people could inhabit for a while. And I think that's still exists in my painting. Mm. And this idea of transportation uh, seems important in your work. 
For example, you write that your paintings are not only an expression of your own emotions, but they're also inviting the viewer on a journey into the deeper realms of nature and concepts of self. What is it in your works that enables, in your opinion, this contemplation and transformation of the viewer? I hope in some ways that the experience of the creator affects the experience of the viewer and my process is very much a meditative or intuitive process so when I when I work on these pieces I often feel as though I'm documenting something some other place that's not quite tangible, not quite visible and it's related to the undergrowth and it's related to these forms and energetic forms in nature but it's not it's not quite there, it's almost like these could you could see them or we could maybe see them and they're sort of half in this world and so in terms of the the link to other people it's yeah, I, I hope that, that this is what happens when other people see the work or feel the work like translation of energy from what you have been experiencing as you were painting onto what they take out of the painting. Like the energy is almost stored in the painting. Yeah. Yeah. The painting is a mediator. Yeah. Yeah. That's a nice way of putting it, actually. Yes. And you draw inspiration from nature, and you have been doing that from as far as I understand the beginnings of your practice as a painter. Was there a particular reason why? nature was inspiring for you from the start well I think like a lot of artists it comes from childhood and I grew up in a very I'm in a big family I'm one of eight children and so everything was shared every space was shared and the garden was a place where you could find a solitude And so I used to spend a lot of time, and, and I grew up in a fairly rural part of the of, uh, England as well, so being out in nature was always a really big, it was just a, a beautiful thing. You'd spend all every evening in the summer, as long as it was light, you'd be outside. And so I think that connection of of peace and a feeling of solitude and self is quite connected with nature. And you're in particularly drawn to microbiological and mycological shapes. And you spoke just a tiny bit before about painting something that's invisible and making it visible. Is this why those shapes interest you? Yeah, the, I mean, I always loved mushrooms and fungi and I always found them fascinating. And I think it does link also with fairy tales and, you know, they've always been imbued with, with magic many fairy stories, the idea of a mushroom holding something powerful and magical was, was always quite tantalizing, I think, as a child. And then learning later about mycelial networks and plant communication and how um, it's an area we know very little about, these small bodies of things which exist that kind of are the, the network, the language of the forests and the language of living things. And also going back to this idea of energy and trying to create something which is an energetic force, I became really interested in the effects of energy on physical forms. So 
there's a book, which again I kind of stumbled into when I first got here, called um, Abstraction in Art and Nature by Nathan Cabot Hale. And he examines um, forms in nature created by energy that then get repeated. So things like kidneys look like eddies of water. There's certain forms that, that recreate again and again, and they're inside us and they're outside of us and they're in clouds and they're in soil. And, and so I became really interested in that as the kind of connective process of mm. repeated form within nature. You talk a lot about books. Do yeah. you read a lot? Yeah, I do. Yeah, always read a lot. And you seem to find inspiration from them, whether it's a philosophical or... Yeah, definitely. I think all through, again, some of the early, early influences on my work and my practice are illustrators. Um, yeah, so books and literature, definitely. Of, of all kinds of different books. We had lots of them in our houses when I was a kid. What are you reading at the moment? I am reading a book called The Secret Life of Trees, which is very, very interesting and quite heartbreaking. And I'm also... Why is it heartbreaking, that one? Oh, because trees do have secret lives and the way that we treat them is appalling. It's because we don't know, but when you chop the limbs off of a tree, you force it into a kind of dramatic tension where it has to regrow everything and it's painful it's like having your own limbs cut off and having to regrow them okay they can regrow them but mm. so it yeah which is an interesting point on this connection between how we treat nature and how we treat fellow human being and even ourselves because you're saying you know it's cutting of the limbs of the tree and you're making analogy of cutting our own limbs which in a way we are, because we are all interconnected and we depend on nature. Yeah, yeah. And I think if we, if we recognised some of the things that we used to know as important, the world would be better, we would be healthier as a species. You have spoken a bit about energy in your work and there is a sense of a lot of movement within your paintings and I was wondering whether this movement is achieved by particular physical processes that you go through as you paint. Yes, I'm, I work on the floor a lot and I've always been very gestural in my movements and so I move around the paintings as I paint them and move up and down and when I paint, it's from, it's like a whole body experience because usually the larger strokes in the paintings are one big movement and then that will lead the charge, I suppose, with all, where all the other pieces come in. And uh, calligraphy is technically and stylistically something that you're drawing on? Yeah, I think it wasn't something I actively pursued. I didn't realise that it was a calligraphic way of working until I saw some videos of Chinese brushwork and then I realised that that immediacy of mark making and and it's not as it's not as free as allowing the paint to just kind of move where it goes but it's about kind of a controlled 
freedom, if that makes sense. And so, yeah, the immediacy of calligraphy is really appealing. I like this thought of controlled freedom, because also I've heard you saying in one of your video clips that um, you find trust important. So you said that painting has a lot to do with trust and that you work intuitively with the process and allow the forms to develop as you paint. Mm. Yes, definitely. And the trust thing is really interesting because it is on a personal level something I actually really struggle with. And so in terms of the connection to the work, growing as an artist and being able to trust the work that I'm making and trust the pieces has been a really quite a profound experience for me because there's always doubt there's an element of doubt in any creative process I think and there's this kind of dichotomy or balance between trust and doubt about your work as you go through the process and mm. I think it challenges you as a person how do you cope with doubt better some days than others <laughs> um i i often leave a piece so if if i feel like i'm working on it too i'm getting into sort of a tight anxious or controlling way of thinking about the piece i'll go away from it and come back to it after 12 hours or 24 hours and see and it usually looks like a completely different painting I know you also draw on Eastern philosophies and you've spoken a bit about meditation as far as I understood. Do you go and meditate at those points? Yeah, sometimes. It depends on what time of day it is. <laughs> um, yes, I will, I will step away and recenter if I'm anxious or I'll listen to, I mean, the amazingness of technology. Um, there are certain philosophers who have things available on YouTube, which I'll listen to. So there's a philosopher called uh, Yidu Krishnamurti. His work really inspires me and will really take me back to the, the right point if I'm feeling too anxious about peace or too disconnected. What about his philosophies in particular? His oft-quoted line is, I don't mind what happens. His philosophy was to do with the idea that we're all playing at being ourselves, at, at being the human. We're all part of the universe and um, we're playing at being me, Genevieve Leerwald, or you. And when you acknowledge that fact, you can realise it doesn't really matter what you do or what happens. And it's a liberating thought. That idea of playing takes the energy out out of worrying about whether it's good or bad or perfect or imperfect or it releases the ego yes when you spoke to me a bit about your background in theater design you said that it taught me to be aware of the fragility of ego when it comes to creativity yes that's very true because there was a particular occasion where we'd worked on a as a group of four of us making a set for a touring production and I'd spent hours, days, like weeks even, perfecting this lettering for a series of pieces of scenery that were being created for the show and 
after the show, um, they realised that they'd made a mistake on the uh, dimensions of some of the touring theatres. And so it was all destroyed. And I had to destroy it. And it was really powerful experience just there was no question it just it had to go and I couldn't be attached to it and I couldn't feel sad and that happened a lot in theatre that you have to reappropriate and change but you still have to give the time and the effort and the energy to the making of it to make it important and powerful in that moment and that taught you as far as I understand to value the process more than the product you said as well, do not get too precious about individual pieces. Yeah. Value the process. Yeah. And talking about mistakes, have you had experiences where mistakes were also discoveries? Yes. But probably more in life than in art. Because of this approach with the way that I make art now, I've almost let go of the idea of mistake. I mean, I think sometimes I make ugly paintings, but it's only my aesthetic decision about it. But in life, I've made loads of terrible mistakes that turned out to be amazing lessons. So did we all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We already spoke a bit about the healing power of art and in a way this view that art is a way of making sense of the world. I I know from personal experience that taking a creative approach to I know that like art has saved my life on many occasions. And I think there's something very powerful about creating something which has no purpose in a way, other than the experience of creating it. I mean, art is beautiful and it does, it does give cause to stop and change your way of thinking and it can challenge your perceptions and it can bring out joy and it can bring out fear and it can it can do these things but the the actual process of making it for the person making it is very powerfully healing I think art making I think at times of crisis in my life it's always been where I've turned to in order to um, express or examine what was going on and I, I think a lot of people do that and I think it's really good I think more people should I think it should be encouraged because sometimes you don't know how to articulate an experience and the process of making you know it's just it's that creative process will sort of helps deal with things that sometimes are unspeakable so it's almost like art takes us beyond the language which is as you were speaking in the beginning limiting because it's constructed it's cultural yeah. it can divide us mm. and art transcends that limitation yeah yeah i love this quote by susie gablik just it's related to what we spoke about 
if we are to save ourselves and our planet from collapse under our appalling and arrogant abuse of nature, we need to re-establish ourselves in the web of interdependent relationships with each other, the earth and all natural and spiritual beings. There's an amazing philosopher called Arne Ness. One of the other things I'm reading actually is an essay about his, his movement, which was called Deep Ecology, which is about exactly that. We cannot exist in isolation. And as much as we have built spaces for humans against nature, and as much as we have tried to force nature into the margins, the nature that we didn't like or that didn't agree with us into the margins kept it in these contained spaces within our cities we're killing ourselves his thesis is that the ecology that exists and I think it's changing he was writing widely in the 70s the ecology that exists is about the preservation of the human species but true deep ecology has to be about the preservation of all life and that is down to the tiniest microbe or the smallest like mosses and ferns and you know we didn't even we don't know anything about the the soil that we grow things in it's not just brown dirt it's it's a living organism itself and one of the biggest problems that we're facing is the fact that our again arrogant practices have destroyed the soil because we don't realize that it's all interconnected with every single thing in the world it's got this beautiful you know balance within it so that makes me think that your practice of drawing microbes of painting microbial forms is also kind of enlarging them and pointing to them and saying they're there yeah yeah and they're beautiful and they're worth taking care of yeah they are Speaking about beauty, you also already said that art is beautiful. <laughs> that was such a clear statement. And yet lots of art today is shying away from beauty into being very conceptual, minimalistic, often even exploring being ugly, being shocking, disturbing. What role does beauty play in your work? thought about this a lot because I I don't think that any artist exists in isolation of their experience of art and I grew up in the 90s Britain where it was all about shock you know Brit art it was all you know dead things and shocking things and violent things and ugly things and I think When I was younger, I really rebelled against that because I think I felt like if you really knew what ugliness was, you wouldn't try and recreate it because you can only ever synthesize it in art. You can't ever really create true ugliness in art because it's not possible because true ugliness is a violent act and art will only synthesize that even with the best will in the world. I mean, I think the closest person to come to the true synthesis of ugliness is Marina Abramovich in her piece, where she allowed people to act their will on her with various objects. And 
at a point she did feel that there was real danger and real possibility of damage. And she was cut and hurt and physically hurt, but... What she's doing is a theatre of ugliness. Yes, yes. Because even with, even with the most pure intention of recreating ugliness, which is quite an interesting idea in itself, you can only create a sort of theatre. And do you find there is a use of that approach in art to recreate ugliness as a way maybe to rekindle the interest in beauty? Maybe. I think it's always... We're, we're always both sort of rebelling and, and exploring the possibilities. So I think artists do rebel against what came before them. One of the things that I found really interesting moving here actually was talking to another artist and from what I've just said about you know growing up in the Brit art and having this kind of need to or, or, or desire to rebel against that, when I came here and I spoke to an artist and he had the opposite reaction to the Brit art movement. He loved it because it was so, to him, rebellious because here there was a very strong culture of classical fine art training where you learn how to paint beautifully or create beautifully you learn all the techniques and there was a kind of in his mind a rigidity to this to the training so for him it was so liberating to see this kind of grubby messy art no and I, I don't think there's anything wrong with grubby messy art at all it was it's more that sort of I think the shock art for me was always it just it, it felt theatrical and that leads me to the question of how do we define beauty? Because something that's technically perfect is technically perfect, but not necessarily not necessarily beautiful. beautiful. And I often considered some very conceptual pieces that almost just have words, no images at all, beautiful because an idea can be beautiful. Definitely. I mean, one of the artists who going back to your previous question about profound experiences through art and um, learning and healing through art, was Mira Chandel, who's a Brazilian artist whose work was highly conceptual and based a lot with using text, actually. And she created these just... But they were so beautiful. They weren't... Again, it's that thing of what beauty is. And I think I think what beauty is is that un, unspoken language of connection... And even so, of the Brit art movement, you know, Tracy Emin's work, again, another artist whose work I found profoundly moving, um, which is not, it's not beautiful, but it is beautiful. Maybe that is how we could define beauty, that it's something that moves you. Yeah, I think. Because as I'm saying, you could have a very technical piece that just lacks that other element, nothing in it moves you. It's yeah. almost empty. Yeah, hollow. Hollow, yes. And it happens, interestingly, I think sometimes with very clever work, because there's a lot of very clever, uh, similarly to technically brilliant work that lacks body. It's like trying too hard to achieve likability mm. as opposed to being honest and true and naked and vulnerable yeah actually that vulnerability is a really interesting 
that's a really powerful word I think that's a thing to connect with without actually vulnerabilities which I suppose leads to your what you were saying earlier about the trust thing is about vulnerability actually because there's a there's always that thing as well as an artist that you will become petrified in a way of creating work if you get a level of success and that stops your vulnerability because you are safe in that place because it's an it's the expected place for you as an artist so I always thought that's a really interesting thing about how you develop and where you if it's possible to stay vulnerable with your work if you become because there is a pressure then pressure to keep producing the same kind of thing that you've once done which is not honest because you're not the same person over time no you're not and also as a viewer or an audience of art i feel a lack of respect when i feel that the artist is not there which made me think of something that andrei tarkovsky writes in relationship to his audience i respect them too much to want or indeed to be able to deceive them. I trust in them, which is why I dare to tell of what is most important and precious to me. Mm. Yeah. I think it's often forgotten, that thing, because it, it is a two-way process. And, and also, um, Tarkovsky then speaks a bit about Van Gogh, who wrote in his diary, when a man expresses clearly what he wants to say, is that, strictly speaking, not enough? When he's able to express his thoughts beautifully, I won't argue that it's more pleasant to listen to him, but it doesn't add much to the beauty of truth, which is beautiful in itself. Just connected to that thought that how do we define beauty and it's also connected with the vulnerability of of mistake yeah because it's if you present a perfect image to the world you're saying you never make a mistake And it's connected to fearlessness. Fearlessness to just go for it. Yeah. Do it as many times as you want. There is nothing that you need to really achieve. Yeah. If you if you connect to the process, then in a way what you achieve is almost irrelevant. Because it's never ending until you end. Even not that when it comes to art. Art leaves us that's true that's another side of it that's quite fascinating this idea of deification of art after an artist's death and I suppose it's natural as a species we've always loved totemic objects and certainly for me and probably for a lot of artists you do you do put your energy into your work you, you is an embodiment of something But it's still, it's still less important than the things that grow on their own. I think, you know, we should celebrate 
trees way more than we celebrate cathedrals. <laughs> and old paintings? And old paintings. I mean, I kind of, I know that, um, was it Joshua Reynolds, who was one of the guys who was the director of the Royal Academy when it was first, I think maybe he was the first director of the Royal Academy. He was really experimental, whether you like his work or not. I mean, he used to experiment loads with with different mediums and paint, and loads of his paintings have fallen apart over the years because because he was so experimental and so keen to find this this particular look or glaze or light or that he just mixed all sorts of things into his paints that meant that they start they start disintegrating over time. And I actually kind of I kind of like that. I like the idea that maybe they have, maybe paintings can only live so long. Mm. Yeah, why not? In Whatever Happened to Beauty response to Danto, Kathleen Mary Higgins writes that beauty typically urges renewed love of life. Beauty, in her view, provides a comforting background against which one can think the uncomfortable. Beauty assures us that something real is lovable. With that awareness, we are capable of the courage to face what is not. Mm. I remember when... So I did a project last year called Desire Paths, which was an interactive project where I asked people to give me stories of their experiences either following a desire or not or following a path or taking a chance or doing something differently and then I made responsive paintings and some of the stories were so painful and the the response I got from people about giving their stories over to me to then create an, a responsive work of art was really interesting about what that piece then represented because I was afraid that it would represent the pain to them because the story was painful, but it didn't. It represented the strength that came after. It was linked with that, I think, being able to capture something beautiful from something difficult. Mm. Yeah. Gives you hope. Yeah, or clarity. Yeah, it gives you something. Hope's an interesting one, though. Just the hope, in a sense, that even though we are surrounded with so much ugliness in, in form of uh, the ways we are, you know, ugliness of ourselves, that there is still something opposite to that. Yeah. That we are also capable of something different than that. Yes, we are. We are. I mean, as a species, we are strangely one of the most compassionate as well we will people will go out of their way to rescue something another thing another being we interact with other beings in a very unusual way but we also have this massively destructive capacity and unfortunately we seem to have built a narrative that focuses on the destructive It has to do with that thing we were already talking about of um, severing ourselves from nature. Yeah. It started early, that, because as soon as we started to categorize the triangle of importance with man at the top, then animal, then plant, 
And that was done on a religious basis rather than any real knowledge because we we're only learning now. I mean, it, it's a strange thing, isn't it? Because actually there was ancient knowledge and recognition of the intrinsic connection between human and nature in so many ancient cultures and and tribal cultures. There was a huge awareness of what nature was and how it was connected. And then we started to move away from that and more into... And this is, a, this is something that I find really, really important and something that I'm examining or thinking about a lot is the fact that we, we moved away from reality and into ideology. And this is, again, links to the idea that, you know, a, an object, a painting made by a man is more important than a tree or a carrot even, or something that grows in the ground that we couldn't, we couldn't create. Our ideologies of the world have become more important than the realities of the world. So we spend times in our studios creating beauty when we could actually go into the nature Just where beauty already exists. Yeah. But then, but then there's an idea of the celebration of beauty, like you said, to take it to others. It's a, it's, this is where this material, spiritual conflict rises in my work because I, I feel that. I feel that challenge in myself. You know, I'm sitting in a room. I mean, ideally I'd be sitting in a forest painting, but I don't have, that's not what I have available to me. But yeah, this is, I suppose, second best always to nature. But even if you're in a forest painting, you're painting rather than observing. But yeah, but I'm celebrating. We, we must have an intrinsic need to do that because we've been doing it for so long, like cave paintings. We've ha we have a need to to examine our world through imagery. And it's another form of connection, I think. One of the philosophers talks about what we bring to the natural world as a species is our attention. And to observe and celebrate when you draw something, you give it your attention and we know how good it feels when you have something's attention like it's a beautiful thing when someone gives you their attention and so I always love that idea that our capacity to give attention to the world and to celebrate it is is what humans bring Thank you for listening to Artemis Projects podcast. For more about our projects, head to artemisprojects.com.au.